I think it's really important to write queer history and to write us back into history because like we know we've always been here, but often we're hiding. Um, and it was incredibly meaningful to talk to my elders, essentially. And of course, not all of the women were gay. And it was important to write about what the league meant to those straight women, too, and what they learned by being on a team with um, openly gay women at a time when it was not acceptable to be openly gay. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we're talking to two terrific sports journalists who have brought their superpowers together to write this great new book called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Total hidden history stuff. Ton of stuff I certainly had no idea about. Their names are Lindsay D'Arcangelo and Brittany De La Creta. Also, I've got some choice words about the new mini series on, or limited series or whatever we call it these days on Netflix, Colin in Black and White about Colin Kaepernick. It's less about the mini series or limited series, which I've only seen a little bit of, but I just have some thoughts in general about it conceptually. So I'm sure that's uh, very enticing for all y'all listening. I also got Just Stand Up Award, Just Stand Up, Just Sit Your Ass Down, and more Jake's Takes. Hello. But first, let's go to Brittany De La Creta and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. So you both are two sports writing superheroes. How did you meet and how did you come together to do this project? We met actually in a Facebook group for sports writers of marginalized genders, I guess you could say. And we became friends. And we came together to write the project because uh, at the time I was doing sports columns for Bitch Magazine and I was writing something about the current state of women's football. But I don't actually know much about football. So uh, spoiler alert, I don't watch football, but I wrote a book about it. And um, Lindsay, though, knows a lot about football and writes about football. And so I was talking to her and complaining that I could not find um, books about the history of women's football. And she suggested I write one. And I said I would only write one if she wrote it with me. And it was a joke. And now it's not. Wow. Lindsay, is is that your recollection that this all started with with a witty repost? Yes, that's it, which is kind of mind blowing to see like this is where we are now. Oh, terrific. So what are the greatest challenges and greatest benefits to co-writing a book? I think the greatest challenges is just melding our different writing styles and and, and work habits. Um, The benefit was definitely this. There was a lot of ground to cover and we didn't even we didn't even un- uncover everything that was that's out there. Um, so having somebody of Brittany's caliber to work on a project like this and, and really do it justice in the best way we could um, possibly do um, was was an amazing experience. And and I honestly don't think I would have wanted to or could have written it with anybody else. Mm. <laughs> Very kind. 
Oh, go go ahead, Brittany. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on the question. Yeah, I think that I agree with what Lindsay said. Um, we have such different writing processes. Like from the moment we signed a book deal, Lindsay was diligently working on this project every morning. And I am kind of, a, I'll call myself a sprinter rather than like a chaos Muppet, which is what I really think. But I didn't touch the project for months and felt guilty about it and then wrote, you know, like 10 or 20,000 words in the week before we turned it in. And Lindsay had been done for weeks with her part. Um, but so I always felt really bad if I were Lindsay, I'd be very stressed out. But um, Lindsay was like, you know, I've seen your final project product. I've seen what you do and I'm going to trust your process and trust that it's going to work. And so having a co-author who believed in me that way and trusted me and didn't micromanage my process was a really, really helpful thing. And I will say that my, the other thing that Lindsay brought to this project is her fiction background. And it is because mm -hmm. of Lindsay that the book is not so bogged down in critical analysis and cultural criticism, which is where I live. Um, and the, she's the reason that the characters sing. And so I think we complemented each other really well. Mm. And so many characters indeed in Hail Mary, the rise and fall of the National Women's Football League. And I want to get to some of those characters. But first, um, what was the most difficult part of actually finding the info, the research to write this book? What kind of records do we have? I mean, do they exist in plain sight or did it take a particular amount of digging to even have the context and the characters to write about the NWFL? It took a lot of, oh, go ahead, Britt. <laughs> some of them um, are newspaper archives, right, is where we started. Um, and we started with digitized archives. I will say a, a weakness in our research, and we know it, is COVID happened. And so we were not able to make a trip to go see some of the archives that were not digitized. For example, I didn't get to Toledo to see the Toledo Blade um, archives, which actually did cover the Toledo Troopers team pretty uh, substantially and more than a lot of other local press covered their teams. Uh, so that was tough, but we started there and that's where you get the names. And then you go to Facebook or like whatever, you know, people search tools you have. We found a lot of, of boomers on Facebook um, and people connected with us. And then from there, a lot of them are, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of them are in touch with at least one other teammate, maybe, and the dominoes start to fall. But the other records that we have is once you get to the players, there's always one who has the closet full of everything that ever existed related to the team. And that's where the old playbooks, the game programs, um, any records they might have kept, uh, newspaper clippings that aren't digitized. We got some of them that way. And it all is like they're like pieces of a puzzle and you just start putting them together and the story starts to become clear. Mm. The, the book definitely reflects that that level of uh, that level of care. Um, it, can you talk about the origins of the National Women's Football League? Um, this idea that it was supposed to look like some sort of uh, Harlem Globetrotters operation and how it was able to uh, really self-transform or self-emancipate from those strictures and become something else? Yeah, actually, it wasn't the, the NWFL that was um, 
envisioned to be like the Harlem Globetrotters. That was actually um, before um, the NWFL started, uh, and it was a, a, a guy by the name of Sid Friedman who was a who was a promoter. He was based in Cleveland, Ohio, and he he ran beauty pageants um, on a regular basis and um, did some other promoting of outlandish events and things that um, could make. He thought could make money. Um, we dub him the P.T. Barnum of women's football in the in the book because he was sort of like that um, circus ringleader, um, just getting everybody in on on what he was trying to showcase. And he saw the potential in women's football, um, whether seeing teams play um, girl teams play against each other in different parts of the country. He just saw got got word of mouth about it and saw the potential for it and thought he could he could turn it into an act um, akin to the Harlem Globetrotters and he started a team called the Cleveland or USA Daredevils they were later renamed the Cleveland Daredevils but that was his that was his uh, brainchild and he recruited um, women from anywhere from 18 to to 40 anyone who could play who wanted to come out and he had tra- had them travel around the Rust Belt area playing against men's teams and what he found was that these women could not only hold their own, but they, they were very talented athletically. And he decided to, to start a couple other women's teams in different, in different uh, Rust Belt area cities, uh, close proximity to, to make travel easy. And um, he just did that for a little while. And um, other people around the country, other men, saw what he was doing and decided to start their own franchises uh, separate from, from his group. And so you have these different teams popping up in different areas. There was one in, in New York called New York Phillies. And then uh, eventually a couple of the teams, and Brittany can speak more to this, uh, the Toledo Troopers were one of them, under his, under his group of teams, under his thumb, decided to part ways. And they combined with some other um, men, one in particular, his name was Bob Matthews, and he started the L.A. Dandelions out in California. And um, he had a set of brothers who started a team in Dallas called the Dallas Blue Bonnets. And those those guys, along with some other teams, decided to form the NWFL separate from from Friedman in 1974. But Friedman was really the the impetus. And um, whether whether you know he he knows it or not, he he is part of women's football history. Um, because he was one of the big, uh, what he did was a big stepping stone um, to make way for the NWFL. Mm. And so many characters in the book, you just mentioned Sid Friedman. Who who are the characters that stick with you and why now that you're all done and you're looking back at the product? There's, well, so, ma- <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many. It's, um, I think... We would be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, Linda Jefferson, who, and I mentioned her first because every player on every team that that we spoke to, they mentioned her first. Um, have you heard of Linda Jefferson? She uh, is an incredible athlete. She was a superstar as much as the league had one. Um, she was a halfback who played on the Toledo Troopers and. What I marvel at about her, you know, she retired with more touchdowns than O.J. Simpson and Jim Brown um, and was really an incredible athlete. And she was on national television and on the cover of Women's Sports Magazine, which was Billie Jean King's magazine. Um, 
what I love about her is how much credit she gives to her teammates and how humble she was and how she recognized, well, I wouldn't score a touchdown if those people behind me hadn't gotten a block. And um, every bit of publicity that she did, she saw as in service of promoting her team. And it was, I, I was really in awe over that. And so she really stands out for me. Um, Rose Lowe, um, who Lindsay talked to from the LA Dandelions, provided us with so much material. And she also, our cover photo is courtesy of Rose Lowe. Um, and she was also really incredible and, and an advocate and a collegiate athlete and, you know, a first generation American. And, you know, so there, there's her. And then for me, my favorite interview was a woman named D.A. Starkey from the Dallas Blue Bonnets. And she's very loud and very fun um, and was really excited to tell me about all of the lesbian bars in Dallas and um, was just a blast. And so I think when I think of the book, those are some characters that come to mind for me. Mm. And uh, Lindsay, um. Can you talk a little bit, unless you have other characters you, you, you wanted to come in with, but I, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about um, the Columbus Pace Setters and their story in the 1970s. Well, I was just uh, going to say that Brittany and I had, um, the way we approached this process is we each, we separated, we divided and conquered. And, and so each of us had a different set of teams to focus on. So each of us got to know um, different players on, um, on a personal level and on a deep deeper level than the other. And so um, I think uh, aside from the the players that we highlight in the book, I think there's a, a numerous that, that stick out in our minds who um, that we've just kind of bonded with throughout this process. So um, every single player we, we each got this to speak to um, numerous times, um, I think holds a special place in our hearts, but uh, Brittany, speaking of teams that we covered, covered the Columbus pace setters. So I will let them, uh, elaborate. I would love to talk about the Columbus Pace Setters. Um, so the Columbus Pace Setters were one of those teams that started kind of under Sid Friedman. Um, a woman named Linda Stamps had gone to see those daredevils play and decided she wanted to start a team in Columbus. And so Friedman provided the uniforms and Linda did everything else. But uh, Friedman wanted, you know, the circus, as they, they said, um, and he was much more interested in showmanship, and he sent a photographer from Hustler out to one of their practices, and the women were horrified, um, and this was around the same time the troopers had left uh, Sid Friedman's group of teams because uh, Friedman had asked the troopers to throw games um, because they were crushing his teams, and, you know, they were serious athletes, all of them, and they took themselves incredibly seriously. And so um, the pace setters also decided to go out on their own. And they played, um, you know, under this ownership group that's fascinating. It's a group of men out of Detroit that owned the troopers as well. And, um, the pace setters, what's really cool about them is that eventually they grew tired of those men too. 
Um, and they were frustrated. They didn't feel valued. They didn't feel appreciated. They felt like they could do a better job on their own. And one of the things that they say is, is football taught us that we got on the field and we realized that together we can do anything. Um, and Linda and as well as Paralee Adams, who also started the team with her, they'd also been housing organizers. And so they knew the power of collective action. And, um, so they banded together and formed a corporation called Ohio Professional Athletics and actually bought their team um, from the men. They were like, we're going to we're going to buy this and do this ourselves. Um, and they did. And that team is really incredible. Um, it is the only team in the league that existed from the beginning in 74 until 1988, when is when is we say the league folded. Uh, it's the last game that, that we can see was played. Uh, we have a 15th anniversary uh, program for that Columbus Pace Setters team from 1988. Um, yeah, so they were really, really remarkable. Mm. It's, it's really amazing. Um, and, and just so folks know, that section of the book um, is up uh, on sportsillustrated.com. So congratulations for that. That's a great exposure. Uh, Thank for you. Th- I think is going to. I think this book's going to blow up. Um, <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> um, no, no, it, it's going to, th- this is going to find an audience. Um, I, I, I wanted to um, ask about uh, broader issues in the end. Um, you, you both, hallmark of your writings over the years has been, uh, you know, remarkably um, intersectional in your approach and analysis. And when you look at the NWFL, how do issues of, of whether we're talking about race or LGBTQ issues, how, how did that enter or complicate the team dynamics? I'll let Brittany uh, take this one. Oh, since, okay. Uh, they, I mean, they really, Brittany went into this um, with so much care and um, really expounded on it, uh, especially with the Dallas Blue Bonnets um, being one of the teams that was founded essentially in a lesbian bar. So um, I think Brittany's more, has more depth to this question. All right. (laughs) I think that for us, there was never a question in our mind that this book was going to talk about more than football. I know on this podcast, you can appreciate that we don't stick to sports. Um, And that was like, it was just never an option for us. Um, Our, uh, former editor at, at Bold Type Books, the editor that acquired this project, had said part of what she loved about it was that we weren't going to heterosexualize uh, women's sports. And I, I think, like, I would call it, you know, we didn't want to straightwash it. You can absolutely tell this story without mentioning that a lot of the women were queer. Um, Lindsay and I are both, you know, gay. And I think for... Me, and I don't want to speak for Lindsay, but I I assume that she feels similarly. I think it's really important to write queer history and to write us back into history because, like, we know we've always been here, but often we're hiding. Um, And it was incredibly meaningful to talk to my elders, essentially. And, of course, not all of the women were gay. And it was important to write about what the league meant to those straight women too. And what they learned by being on a team with um, openly gay women at a time when it was not acceptable to be openly gay, um, just as much as it was important to talk about 
the way race played out on these teams that were very racially diverse. But we know a lot of American cities are pretty segregated. And so particularly for the white players, they often hadn't spent a lot of time around women of color. Um, and what they learned and how that impacted them, but also how how the the players of color were impacted by being around people who hadn't spent that much time. And so these were all dynamics. We talk about class, a lot of the working class roots of a lot of these women. Um, it was important for us not to erase their identities because those identities are key to understanding who they are and how they came to the league and the teams that they were on. Mm. I think I'd also like to add to that too, is what we, we found and one of the beautiful things about these women and the, and these, these separate teams is they, when they were on the football field, all of that went out the window. They were, they were bonded together and um, working together as one unit to achieve uh, one goal. And it, you know, there was so much acceptance um, from all angles on, on the gridiron and, and even off, you know, as, you know, as teammates. So um, that was a, that was a, just a wonderful thing to hear them discuss. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, the conception of making sure that uh, voices aren't consciously or subconsciously just written out of histories. It happens way too much. And, you know, I, I deal with that too, like having to um, re really focus my mind on, okay, who am I excluding? And asking that, having to ask that question, because sometimes it can unspool uh, subconsciously without even realizing it. Um, but this, this is terrific. So thank, thank you so much for doing that. So <clears throat> you've been so generous with your time. Can you talk your wishes into existence? Um, who would you like to read this book? Um, would you want to see the NFL partner with you on this book and send you on tour to all 32 teams to tell this history? I mean, what, I mean, movie, documentary, what, what, what are your concepts? What are your ambitions? Where, where do you, where can you see this book go? I, I think, I think I, how about I go and then, and Brittany can um, add or explain how they feel as well. Um, for me, I would just like as many people to read it as possible. And, and, and because this is a, an untold history and like I said before, um, being able to work on this project and, and it's create this book with Brittany is just kind of, I feel is like kind of a once in a lifetime thing because mm -hmm. you don't stumble on something like this, some, a hidden history, a hidden league that hasn't ever been covered before to this extent, um, you know, on a regular basis. So yeah, I, I would love people of all ages to read this. And I know, I already know parents who have contacted me and said, you know, I've, I'm going to get this for my daughter or, you know, my, my, my niece is in college and she loves, she wants to play football. I would love to get this for her, things like that. So that's inspiring. But on a, on another level, documentary, 30 for 30 podcast movie, like I want to see it all, <laughs> you know, get out there in different mediums. And really it's for the women who played, um, put them front and center, get them on some morning talk shows, you know, give them the recognition and, um, attention that they deserve that they they have you know been forgotten and it it would love to put them back in the narrative of, of women's football 
Yeah, and, and women's sports as a whole. And women's sports in general, yes. I mean, how many people who consider themselves uh, women's sports fans um, don't know anything about this history or even that it existed? I bet a huge number. I know women's sports historians that had never heard of this league. It's wow. It's wild how unknown it is. Uh, and I think that this book will resonate beyond people who care about football. I, I, my world is this like weird place of people who love sports and then a lot of people who don't care about sports at all. And they're all equally excited about this book which I think is incredibly cool. I do typically think of myself as someone whose work is for people who don't think they care about sports. I really, I believe that we can learn so much and sports stories are human stories as we talked about how much other, you know, stuff is in this narrative beyond just what happened on the football field. Um, so I do hope that this book resonates with a lot of people. And I also would love the women to be able to speak for themselves. I hope that they get interviews. We have list of people who are available to talk to the press. Um, they can speak for themselves. They're still here. And I would love them to be able to because they're fantastic. And so that's something that I, I hope happens. And yeah, um, if we could get a movie, that would be cool. We may or may not have a list of um who we would like to play certain characters so <laughs> it's a little wish list so that would be that would be cool well if the producer or screenwriter says that they want uh a Brittany and Lindsay character to sort of frame the story like the sort of idea of looking backwards as journalists and then boom flashback who plays you oh my god <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, I have no idea. I don't either. Someone gay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll, 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 we'll put that in variety. Yeah, um, someone gay, please. Also, the, the one thing, whoever makes this movie, we're going to fight for butch representation on screen with love interests and fully rounded characters. Nice. That's, see, I, I think this is totally going to happen. I mean, it, it just it just feels too too right to not happen. It's such a good story. Uh, this country loves football, and um, this this is this is so perfect for this moment. Congratulations to you both. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, thank you. We re we really appreciate all of your support. Well, I want you to send me some of the, please, the press people um, so I can interview them on the podcast or the people who've said they're, they're open for the, to talk. Totally. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd love, I'd love to speak to that, that, because I mean, that's, I, I live for that stuff on this show, like just hidden histories, stuff people thought they knew but didn't know, um, completely, you know, transgressing uh, what people thought were set narratives. Um, this is this is amazing. Um, and then just one last question, because I asked this of everybody who comes on the show. What was your soundtrack as you were putting the book together? Hmm. Now, I write exclusive. Oh, I was going to say I write exclusively to the hours soundtrack from the movie. Oh, I cannot wow. write with um, lyrics or anything because 
I can't like I can't even listen to a podcast while watching the dishes. I actually get very uh, distracted by words. But I every so the soundtrack to literally everything you ever read from me is the hours. Wow, Philip Glass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. What about what about you, Lindsay? I actually don't write to music. I used to. I used to a lot in like of my former life as a copywriter. Um. But I feel like that was more, you know, mindless coming up with taglines when when I'm doing like uh, articles and, and features and something as in depth as this book. It's like I need com- I just need silence um, just to let it let all the the creative juices flow um, without any distraction. So um, yeah, I really didn't I didn't write to any music. But if I were to choose, and I'm a big soundtrack fan myself for for certain moods and things i think i would have done this to the rudy soundtrack to the rudy soundtrack yes the closing song oh my goodness that's hey you know rudy does it for me too so i'm I'm gonna (laughs) gonna have to go back and re-listen to that final song yes because it's not springing to mind but i'm all about i'm all about soundtracks so that's fantastic well uh, Brittany, Lindsay, congratulations. The book is called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. We'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words. Okay, look. With much fanfare, Colin in Black and White, a new show about Colin Kaepernick, uh, premiered on Friday on Netflix. Created by Kaepernick and acclaimed filmmaker Ava DuVernay, the show, according to Netflix, quote, chronicles Kaepernick's coming-of-age story, tackling the obstacles of race, class, and culture as the black adopted child of a white family. In other words, this will not be a story about a quarterback leading a team to the Super Bowl or later taking a knee during the national anthem, confronting the entire power structure in the country's most profitable sports league, and then being blackballed. The story instead is about a biracial adoptee in suburban California and the beginning of his journey towards becoming all of those things. Each of the six episodes is narrated by Kaepernick himself. And the former NFL quarterback is profoundly media-averse. But now, like athletes from Tom Brady to Naomi Osaka, he is controlling the message, just like a football coach who scripts the first 20 plays of a game. It is no wonder that in an email interview with the Los Angeles Times, Kaepernick wrote of the project, I want black and brown communities, particularly youth, to know we will face racism, we will face white supremacy, We will face oppressive systems, but we have the power to overcome them and the power to change them. 
I want them to know that we don't have to accept the status quo and ultimately I want them to be their full selves and to stand firmly in their full power. It would be remarkable if Kaepernick and DuVernay were able to achieve such a lofty goal with Kaepernick's biography. His story is one of adoption, suburban wealth, and a personal reckoning with the realities of racism while being raised by a white family. Now we've had great examples of sports biopics that focus on athletes who played a role in their era's freedom struggles, including 42 about pioneering baseball player Jackie Robinson and Ali about three-time heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali. In those films, we get to see the subjects' childhoods through the prism of the injustices that surrounded them. In this series, we should look to see how DuVernay and Kaepernick accomplished that, especially since this work will remain focused on Kaepernick's upbringing and, unlike the above-mentioned films, won't focus on his political awareness as an adult. It really remains to be seen if there's an audience for this kind of intensive bio. But my hope, no matter if it's a huge hit or not, I just hope it's just the beginning. I would like to see a work about the entirety of the social justice movement of the last five years in sports in DuVernay's capable hands. I'd like to see her depiction of Kaepernick demonstrating without flinching for four straight months during the 2016 NFL season. I'd like to see her depicting Kaepernick somehow playing some of the best football of his life despite the scrutiny, the boos, and the death threats. I'd like to see DuVernay and Kaepernick then give dramatic treatment to the courage displayed by the hundreds upon hundreds of younger athletes who inspired by his actions took a knee during the playing of the anthem in protest of police violence and racial inequity. This latter subject is, of course, of particular interest to me, as the book I just wrote, The Kaepernick Effect, is less about Kaepernick than the countless young people he inspired. In their stories, you can see the blueprint of a movement that led to the summer of 2020, when the police murder of George Floyd resulted in the largest protests in this country's history. In their stories, you can also see the harbinger of the backlash and violence that has become a hallmark of the post-Donald Trump era as white supremacists grow and go to war over what they often misrepresent as critical race theory. I hope those young people's stories merit equal treatment in a forthcoming biographical series, because it is important that we not just see the last five years as being encapsulated by one individual. The push for a racial reckoning has been a collective grassroots movement that also included the professional athletic fields of the United States. And we need artistic works that emphasize widespread participation in these protests or the actual history will fall prey to celebrity culture, passivity will rule the day, and people will wait for the next great person, usually great man in history's telling, to come down from planet hero and save the day. The reality of social movements is always more messy, often more dramatic, and certainly more empowering. DuVernay did a brilliant job in Selma of showing that the people we know as great leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis, depended on grassroots protesters turning out and that those grassroots protesters created the conditions that allowed a figure like King to rise. We should appreciate the efforts to bring Kaepernick's coming-of-age story into our living rooms, but there's so much more to his story and the stories of the people Kaepernick inspired. So let's hope there's a sequel. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. 
People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show I call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! It doesn't really just stand up. It's just an appreciation for Dusty Baker. As I'm talking right now, he's in his... uh, uh, he's in the World Series. He's managing the Houston Astros. This is the fifth team he's taken to a pennant um, or won the division. I mean, he's Dusty Baker, for goodness sakes. He can tell you stories about Satchel Paige, Glenn Burke, Fernando Valenzuela, uh, or Luis Garcia. I mean, he is an absolute icon. And I'm, I'm, I've moved to this point in an Astros versus Braves World Series when I consider the Braves and the Tomahawk Chop and all the rest of it. Uh, and when I think about Houston, and I know they cheated a few years ago, but this is for Dusty, man. So just stand up for Dusty Baker, and yeah, I'll say it. Go Astros, uh, especially against the Atlanta anachronisms. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Goes to Roger Goodell for covering up the atmosphere of predatory sexism on the Washington football team. And then we find out that Roger Goodell's made like 60, 70 million dollars a year the last several years, which is even more than I thought he was making. I mean, my goodness, you could pay me a tenth of that. Actually, you know what? Let me rephrase that. You couldn't pay me all the money in the world to defend Dan Snyder. This is not proud work, Roger Goodell. This is embarrassing to you, your family, father, who was U.S. Senator, who uh, wrote up the uh, legislation to remove uh, our troops out of Vietnam over the objections of Nixon. Uh, your father, a Republican who went against the Republican Party and was proven right by history. Your father, who had a degree of courage. I mean, where's your courage? I mean, it's not even that you're refusing to stand up against a a war, some great injustice. You're standing up for Dan Snyder. Oh, my goodness. Roger, look in the mirror. Look in your heart. This is not proud work. And until you change your ways, I got to tell you, man, you just got to just sit your ass down along with those tomahawk choppers. Sit your ass down. Boom, we are back for the part of the show that is sweeping the nation. It's called Jake's Takes. He's my son, Jacob Zirin. He picks football games. Uh, we see how good he does, and frankly, it's been pretty impressive thus far. Jacob, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. So what's your record at this point? 74-33. and 33. Jeez. All right, that's very impressive. You're effectively guessing games correctly at a... 73% clip. Uh, take that, Colin Cowherd. He's, he's, Colin Cowherd's too scared to respond to my challenges for him to go head-to-head against Jake. Uh, I've heard that through the grapevine. He's scared. Cowherd. All right. Week 8 of 18. Let's see how you do. We're talking on Thursday right now at 6 o'clock p.m., the game tonight. Whew, I, I don't. I'm glad I don't have to pick this. 
Packers at the Cardinals. Who you got? Now, both teams are kind of riddled with injuries, you know. I mean, J.J. Watts out for the season, likely out for the season, unless they go deep into the playoffs. And the Packers, they have so many injuries. I mean, Devontae Adams is out. Alan Lazard is out. David Bakhtiari is out. Zedarius Smith is out. Jerry Alexander is out. But... Aaron Rodgers is going to pull this win off. Wow. And Aaron Rodgers is going to give the Cardinals their first loss of the season. That is a bold pick. That is a bold pick in Arizona. Okay, let's keep it moving. We'll keep it moving fast. Panthers at the Falcons, the struggling Carolina Panthers. This is not a hard game for me to pick. I mean, the the Panthers have really struggled these past couple games without CMC, and they're going to be out. He's going to be out again this week. And, you know, the Falcons – I think this is going to be Calvin Ridley's coming out game for this season, for this season, you know, I mean. It's been slow so far. It has been really slow for him. I've seen so many predictions. Oh, yeah, this is the week where he's going to do it. Oh, this is the week he's going to do it. Well, this is going to be the week that he does it, and the Falcons are going to take their win. Jacob has spoken. All right, mm-hmm. next week. This is an interesting one to pick, too. Titans in Indianapolis. Titans in Indianapolis, and, you know, the team – that is at home right now is going to win this game. The Indianapolis Colts are going to win wow. this football game. As Love the, that pick, actually. the Titans are off two very good wins against a struggling Kansas City Chiefs team and a really probably the best team in the AFC, Bills team. So they're really hot right now. But, you know, I, there, there are always that, those upset games. You know, Carson Wentz has his games, and this is going to be one of those days where the Colts are just like, oh, yeah, this is our win. All right, Dolphins going to Buffalo to play the Bills. This is my lock of the week. Whoa. As the Bills will destroy the Dolphins yet again. I don't think I've picked against the Dolphins to to lose, so I am going to do it right now, and the Bills are going to heavily beat the this, the Miami Dolphins. Okay, the whack-ass Cincinnati Bengals will be traveling to New Jersey to play the Jets. Tell me the Jets would humiliate the Bengals. Be, we should not be saying that now after that win for the Cincinnati Bengals last week I'm against just, the I'm Baltimore just still salty Ravens. about it. And of, I don't think this is too hot of a pick. I would have picked this for my lock of the week, but I've already picked against the Jets. And the Bengals will win this game very comfortably. Joe Burrow's looking really, really good. Jamar Chase is the best wide receiver rookie Looking like of all time. Yeah. I mean, he's looked unreal. He's he's looking at, I mean, he's such a good pick. Looking back at it, everybody was talking about in the preseason. No, he has no hands. He's not going to work out in the NFL. He's proven them all wrong. And the Bengals are going to win this football game in, in New Jersey. All right, yeah. So that was an easy game to pick. This one is not. The Pittsburgh Steelers travel to Cleveland against the Browns. And we're not even even sure who the Browns quarterback is going to be. Well, I'm going to assume that Case Keenan is playing because he's the better quarterback. No, Ooh. I'm just joking. I'm <laughs> obviously joking. The the Browns, you know, they they're they have such a better roster than the Steelers, in my opinion. They have the the best run game in football. I've said that a couple of times, and I'm going to stick with that. But even with um, Kareem Hunt out, I'm I'm assuming that Nick Chubb is playing with the with the best offensive line in football. Yeah, and that's, that's the truth. I think it doesn't matter what quarterback <clears throat> they have on Sunday because, you know, you're facing Ben Roethlisberger, Ben Roethlisberger, who isn't a strong quarterback himself. 
So I think just you have to base it off roster with the quarterback problems that the Browns just they're just better even with the in division matchup. It could go either way because of that. But I'm gonna take Cleveland Browns. All right, Eagles travel to Detroit to play the Lions. This is a tough game too. Who you got? I got Dan Campbell. Oh, you love Dan Campbell. And the Detroit Lions, my favorite coach in the NFL, and the Detroit Lions to get their first win in Detroit. I like I like them. I like Dan Campbell, like I said. All I right. love Tell Jalen me the Hurts. truth, real quick. Tell me the hmm. truth. Do you wish Dan Campbell was your dad? <laughs> All right, let's not get let's not go down that road. Okay. I like the Lions. I'll take that as a maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Rams travel to Houston to play the hapless Texans. Oh, Talk about lock of the week potential, but who, who, who do you I've like? Ar- I've already taken the. I've already picked yeah. the Texans. Sadly, I shouldn't even talk about this game that much. The Too Rams obvious. are going to win this game. It's easy. All right, another one that is some people will think is easy, but I actually don't. 49ers go to the Bears, where their coach has COVID. Now, wait, whose coach is COVID? Oh, Nagy has COVID. That is a positive for the Ouch. for the Chicago Bears. I'm being so serious. That's that's a positive for them. Yeah. Because their offensive coordinator, I, I can't remember his name, but he's a better play caller for them. He's he's done that in better the past and he's Fields. been way better. He he got that win for them. Um he got that really good win for them. Um God, I can't remember. It was early in the season. They got a really good win. And that 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 was a Cincinnati game. Bill Lazor. Bill Lazor. He's he's gonna. He's your guy right he's, there. Yeah, and they're gonna win that football game. You know, if this was in if this was in San Francisco, it might be a different story. But I'm gonna take Justin Fields and the and the Chicago Bears. Okay, let's uh, we gotta move it along. Patriots Chargers in L.A. Who do you got? This is going to be a good football game. Mac Jones, the rookie, traveling to the second-year quarterback's Chargers. And the Chargers are a really good team coming off a bye week, coming off a big loss to the Baltimore Ravens, 34-6. And But even with that, you know, they have bye week time to plan for this game, and they're going to win this game in L.A. Give me the Los Angeles Chargers. The Shaguars, Jacksonville Jaguars, go to Seattle to play the Seahawks. They, there's rumors that Russell Wilson might play. Who do you like? Will he actually might play? Nah, they're just like, you know, Russell's got his stands. They think he's bionic. I mean, I just think this the Seattle Seahawks, they don't use Geno well at all. They don't throw the ball at all, which it just annoys me so much because they, they do not have a good running game. They do not have yeah. a good offensive line. Throw the ball to your pass catchers, which is, the, throw. which is Let the Gino biggest, cook. which is the brightest spot of your team. You're not using them. It aggravates me so much. Is Clearly. that is that partly because Tyler Lockett's on my fantasy team? Maybe. Maybe, but that's besides the point. Jacksonville's getting their win in Seattle. Wow. Yeah, if Gino's if Gino's playing, yeah, because they don't trust him. Yeah, that's a shame too. Gino got skills. All right. Tampa Bay Bucks travel to New Orleans to play famous Jameis and the Saints. Who do you got? Who do I got? Who do I have? Yeah. I have the New Orleans Saints. Psych. No psych. Wait, what? No psych. I have Wait, the New what? Orleans Saints in this game. No psych Good in this. Gracious. No psych in this. Sean Payton and the New Orleans Saints are going to beat Tampa Bay Buccaneers. When I was growing up, you know what people called the Saints? What? The Aints. The Aints? 
Well, they ain't going to be the losers in this game, that's for sure. Ayo. Okay. <laughs> Jameis, you know, Mark Ingram's back there. Oh, uh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I do too. All right, the Washington football team. Hopefully Dan Snyder will be deposed by the time this game is played, although I doubt it are going to Denver to play a very hapless-looking Broncos team, which has been terrible ever since their coach, Vic Fangio, complained about the Baltimore Ravens running an extra five yards in that game. What a maroon Fangio is, but whatever. Uh, Who do you like, Washington or the Broncos? Who do I like? This is going to be a low-scoring battle. I know that. And both teams have kind of been subpar. They've kind of struggled so far this season. This is a tough matchup. I'm gonna lead towards. I'm gonna lean towards Washington. In this Interesting, because you've been like picking the Broncos every week, and that's always been one of your losses. That is true. <laughs> so maybe it's time to jump ship. <laughs> I'm gonna take Taylor Heineke's football team. Wow. All I right. I think this will be a good game for Ricky Shields Jones at the tight end position. Ooh, what a call! What a call! All right, Sunday night game, the Dallas Cowboys against the Minnesota Vikings in Minnesota. This game is going to be a shootout. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a shootout. I know that. But you know why? Because both these teams have high-powered off high-powered offenses, off high-powered offenses mm-hmm. and subpar defenses. This is going to be a high-scoring 30s kind of game. And the Cowboys will come out on top sub-barely. They're going to come out on top barely. I really like the Cowboys. You don't want to pick the Cowboys. I don't don't want to pick the Cowboys, but I like their offense a lot, actually. Sure. You're going to the boys over Minnesota. I I like Minnesota in this game. I hate Mike McCarthy. Oh, terrible coach. And I I don't like their defense. They have like two bright I think the Vikings are going to win this. I can really see that. Yeah, this I is my one. I think this is my. This and the Bucks are my only two disagreements with you so far, I think. Okay. Um, I love your Colts Titans pick. Oh, we have one more. Uh, the New York Football Giants travel to Kansas City, the struggling Kansas City team. Who do you like? Now, they are the Kansas City Chiefs. They are struggling, and this is going to be their. This is going to be their boom game. They're going to go off on their trash Giants team they're easily gonna win this football game and this is gonna be the game where they really they just they just get back into rhythm you know this is Patrick Mahomes is gonna have a really good game this week I know that wow okay that's a tough call right there because the Chiefs are like the Chiefs are like a, a, a lion that's bleeding out man I mean, I'm pretty sure that I already picked against the Giants but if I didn't I might have picked against them wow they're going right. to get destroyed. Well, those are Jake's takes. Those are Jacob Zirin's picks. Anything else you want to add to the people? Not really. I mean. You have such contempt for the people. Such contempt for the people. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's cracking me up. All right. It's all good. Yo, we got to go. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. Thank you to uh, Lindsay D'Arcangelo and Brittany De La Creta for your book, Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Thank you to uh, Jake for coming on for Jake's Takes. Thank you to the producer of this podcast, David Tegaboo. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>